Great. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to hear how your practice of mind, mindfulness in your daily life is going. Particularly, you know, mindfulness uh, applied to the practice of virtue, right speech, and right action. Everybody has been practicing that way. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> start. I know. Yeah. And whenever, sometimes though, I still start to say something negative about somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is usually because I mean, this is something where multitude of people have the same negative impression of this one person. So it's not like you know, I'm saying something that's just you know, it's, it's generally agreed that this person's a pain in the butt or something. But as soon as I start to say something, oh, I'm not supposed to say like, I'm not supposed to talk like that, I'm not going to talk like that, and I stop myself. But I'm still having to catch myself, mm-hmm. you know, because there's frustration and anger, you know, behind some of it, you know. So, so you're, you're, you're stopping yourself, <clears throat> and, but you're recognizing why it is that you're Oh, immediately, yeah, I understand the intention, mm-hmm. I understand, I'm seeing all of that, it's just, I have to just not do that, no. not go there. Right. And so, how deep does your understanding of why you're doing it go? I mean... It, it's, I know exactly what's going on, it's just, I can't help myself. I just, mm-hmm. it's so, this person can be so annoying, he's annoying for everybody, mm-hmm. everybody hates him, or whatever, you right. know what I mean? And it's just so frustrating. So then I get caught up in it. So I, yeah. I didn't realize that simple conversations with my friends could so rapidly degenerate into gossip that I wouldn't even see see us doing. And now having paid attention to something you said about the effect of gossip is that it changes how you feel about that person and it's a clear difference between interacting with that person and that vast spiritual real estate that is a, a creature versus a construct where you, 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 you chop off all the outliers to make up this human being about which then you may feel free to make a judgment and, uh, and I, I didn't it, it was really interesting to see just how rapidly that, that slaughter of outlying detail just never mind, never mind the facts. Don't bother me with the facts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that was really kind of shocking. But there's this conundrum. If it were really just simple wickedness, it would be pretty easy to quit. But it's like it actually serves a purpose. And I wasn't, I'm not clear when, when my friend asks advice and says, okay, I just met this guy and he wants to know if he can bring his three-year-old on our first date. Is, is that bad? And this whole conversation ensues. On some level, my friends and I are offering yeah, that's kind of different. That's kind of a problem. And and that's supposed to be advice. 
and I'm really squishy on where it becomes, yeah, you're not misperceiving, this is not a typical behavior, versus, oh, how could he? And, you, you know, I'm really looking for some advice from you about how to tell the difference between constructive and destructive conversation about someone behind their back. Mm -hmm. Well, let's back up here. What is the point of practicing virtue? Is it to stop doing unvirtuous things? Nah. It's to become someone better than you are. Okay. It, it is to become someone better than you. If you stop doing unvirtuous things, are you better than you were? Mm -hmm. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> kind of depends on why you stop doing those things. Yeah. Well, to some extent, at our training wheel level here in the Sangha, it is sufficient to begin by saying, that's really not good for you, and expanding from there into yeah. experiencing why that's not true. Yeah. You know? Right. Well, the, there are <clears throat> a tremendous number of positive, beneficial outcomes uh, of behaving in a virtuous way. Right. Just behaving in a virtuous way is it's more it's more one of those really good side effects. <laughs> you know, it's it's about understanding yourself, understanding understanding the truth of the Dharma and understanding what's really going on. I call it a mindfulness practice because it's going to allow you to do those three things that I mentioned earlier. It's going to allow you to you train yourself to be aware of what is happening, of what you're doing, of what you're saying. And you go a little deeper and <coughs> be aware of why you're doing it. What are the reasons behind it? Now then, the next thing is that you know once you once you see what you're doing and why you're doing it, if you're if you are cultivating a uh, a value system, right, which has to do with the kind of things that the kind of person that you would like to be, uh, and maybe the, the the kind of world that you would like to live in, then it's about whether whether what's happening, whether what you're doing, whether the reasons for it are all consistent with those values. So, kind of the end of the process is you decide, okay, well, I just should not doing those, do those kinds of things. So it's reasonable to stop in mid-sentence and say, uh... Of course, it's always reasonable mm -hmm. to stop in mid-sentence. Now, you, you told us about so somebody's asking your your opinion, I guess, and opinion, you took it as advice. advice. No, should should I should I back out of this date now? Is this guy crazy? That sort of thing. She really was asking. Yeah, right. And so, in a situation like that, 
one of the things to ask yourself before you before you do anything else is what's really happening here? Is that really what they're doing? You can only deal with what's reported to, um, to you, can you? Yeah, you can, no. you can go more deeply than that. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it was the case in, in, in this situation, but sometimes somebody would do something like that just because they wanted you to know they got a date. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's a one. And oh. there could be all kinds of myriad other uh, things behind it. Oh, okay, I'm a little thick. And, and so, yeah, what's what's really happening? Once you know what's really happening, uh, you're in a much better position to decide what's appropriate to do or say in response. <laughs> and, and and what you ultimately do or say it, it depends on how well you understand well both sides of the situation, what the person is really doing, what uh, uh, what they really want or need, and there's also when you respond to them what you're you're doing, and what are the reasons for that, and and are they are your motivations of the kind that are going to be beneficial to you or are they harmful to you? You know, whatever you say may be beneficial or may be harmful to the other person. And that's an important thing. But really just as important is what are your motivations for saying it and are they going to be harmful to you or beneficial to you. So you may say something that's beneficial to the other person but it's coming from an unwholesome motivation that's going to be harmful to you. So there's a lot more to this. Uh, and that's why I, you know, I really want to stress, it's not about a set of rules and you're learning to follow the rules. It's about... So is the barometer for whether it is wholesome to you just simply how you feel after having spoken? No, the barometer, in the simplest sense, it is to realize whether or not what you do is done out of, out of selfishness any form of selfishness. And to the extent that it is, I say to the extent that it is, because you know it may be partly out of selfish reasons, it may be partly out of uh, trying to uh, help another person. Okay? So to the extent that it's selfish reasons, that's the problem. The thing you say could be really beneficial to that person, but if it includes some selfish motivation, what you're doing is you're making you're you're not making yourself into the kind of person you want. Well, well, if I wanted to get particular about it, I could always kind of by saying it's very clear that I'm being uh, uh, acquisitive about maintaining my friend. I'm not my friend. I want yes, to have that's right. Exactly. This is a yeah. craving. I could always that's bash right. myself about craving. Sure, that's right there. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's about getting in touch with that. Because, you see, that is a part of so much of what we do. And uh, you might do the exact same things and say the exact same things. But if you can become aware of the degree to which craving, some, some, some self-aggrandizement, some, you know, expecting some sort of reward, whatever it is, 
interest. And really, you can recognize that that's there. You know, just recognizing that, that, that that's a part of it removes some of the power of it. Just, just knowing that that motivation is in there. But you can see that you can get to a place. Well, if you can get to a place where you're saying the same good and helpful things that you would have otherwise, but now there's no selfishness in it. You're just you're doing it because it's the right thing to do, and it's where you have your friend. So that's that's a big improvement right there. But the spinoff is that um, you're less likely to do and say things out of those kinds of self, uh, selfish motivations at any other time as well. You've changed yourself. You've become a different kind of person. And, and that's, that's the magic of uh, mindfulness in this situation. So, you know, what are, what, we talk about virtue, precepts, you know, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are things that are worth doing in their own right, because they're good things. But there's this whole, this whole other really powerful dimension to them that, first of all, they give you something to focus on. Everybody's saying to me so often, how do you manage to be mindful in your life? Well, this gives you something to hang mindfulness on. That I'm going to try to, to uh, behave in these ways. And then to be mindful means that that you know what you're doing, why you're doing it, whether or not it's what you want to be doing, and it gives you the opportunity to to what well, to make the choice whether to do it or not. But even you know, even when you don't have a choice, just knowing what you're doing, even when you still make the wrong choice because your your motivations are strong. Just knowing that uh, is important. And also, in a situation like you described, somebody comes and they ask something, and, and there's two or three people, and really there's a group dynamic, not too much time there. I mean, you have to, you have to be really good at this mindfulness stuff in order to stay mindful in that situation. But afterwards, still have the opportunity to to practice mindfulness of that situation retrospectively. And by doing that, that is going to help you know, help you come to the place of being able to be mindful when those kinds of things are actually happening. When you're in a situation when the group dynamic is operating, there will be some part of you that says, oh, okay, what's happening here? It's all mindfulness training, really. I find the situation very interesting. Here's the, the first situation where a person's trying to be real honest and saying, if you want to go out with me, you got to take me for who I am. And that includes the other part of my life, who's this young boy. And that's a very honest request. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that was and part then, of that conversation. Yeah. That was part. This conversation went on for three days, so I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so, so many different possibilities. There, yeah. You know. yeah. Yeah. And, and and you take it a step back, you know. So the person who asked you the question, what was she, what was she really doing? And then the person who suggested bringing 
childlike faith, what were they really doing? And there's many different possibilities, right? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It, but this is, this is the trick with all this cool mindfulness practice. How did they put it? No plan of attack ever survives contact with the enemy. Once you start putting mindfulness practice into, well, here's a real example. This was kind of complicated. Yeah. That yeah. is is. But you'll you'll notice you'll notice something very important here, that the armies of the world, the generals of them, haven't said, well, no plan of attack ever survives contact with the enemy. Therefore, there's no point planning anymore. We just won't bother. Oh uh, well, okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but mm, I don't get that from mindfulness. Mindfulness does not beg me to no longer plan. No, mindfulness doesn't, and it's it's just the opposite. But on the other hand, it does invite me to be open to something besides my plan. Yeah. You know, the sense that life is what happens while you're making other plans. It's to step outside of that place where you just, you know, autopilot takes over and you're responding as much to the other people in the conversation as you are to the person who asked you the question. And this is all mixed in with how you want to be perceived. And, you know, it's it's stepping out of that box of just all of these unseen forces are are driving you, and you're not even even aware of it. Or if you, or this is the, this is exquisite. You get to be aware of it, but it goes by so fast. All you're doing is going, uh, 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 and but, you can't yeah. really yet intervene. That's right, and that's where. Uh, that's where uh, reflecting afterwards is really valuable. Because then you can, you know, it's it's the it's like playing the videotapes after the game. You get to you get to see what happens. As a matter of fact, that is what the generals do: is they review all of the battles where the plan didn't survive contact with the enemy, <laughs> and they try to learn from that. I suspect that if, if gossiping stopped, productivity would go up about 20% in the workforce. What's that? If, if gossiping stopped, productivity would go up about 20% in most businesses. Yeah, and, they just and, all switch to solitaire. But, <laughs> but the, all of the spin-offs from that would be an, enormous. It would, it would increase productivity even more, I think. <laughs> yeah. Just the gossip itself is only the beginning seed of, of the problems that it creates. Um, I was in a confrontational, I've been dealing with confrontation the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I think the universe is going overboard. <laughs> I've been having a lot of it. Um, yeah. I went to get a new kitten. I have, I have an adult cat, and I decided to get another kitten, and I went to the shelter, and... Um, found a kitten, and the lady put my name in the computer and found out that I had brought seven cats back in 2000. And she was thinking about not letting me adopt the kitten. But when I put her in my shoes at that time in the year 2000, it was a judgment on whether I put my family first or the cats first. And so the cats lost. They went to the shelter and got adopted. But when I very calmly and very to the point, put her in my shoes to which judgment she would make. 
then I thought about it and I was able to take the kitten home. But one of the things that she said was she wanted the kitten to have a forever home. I said, well, that sounds really good on paper, okay? But I could walk out of here and get hit by a truck, and then it wouldn't be a forever home. So I was able to take the kitten home, but when I went home, I realized that probably if I hadn't been thinking um, mindfully and thinking of, um, of not being angry and putting her in my moccasins, as they say, I probably would have, got, would have gotten mad and just left. But as it was, I had everybody's attention. There was five of us in there. And there was an older couple that were adopting two kittens. And I thought to myself, you know, I could walk out of here and get hit by a truck, and you'd end up having the kitten back. So I couldn't guarantee her that it would be a forever home. You know, but the, the mindfulness thinking before I opened my mouth which is very hard for me, and to put her in my shoes mm -hmm. so that she would understand what the judgment was back in 2000. Otherwise, she wouldn't have let me have the cat. She would have judged me for what I did back in 2000 instead of what's going on now in 2013. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, that's something that is so much a part of uh, all of our behavior. So much of what we do and say doesn't have to do with the present, but it has to do with what happened in similar situations in the past, the way distant past, when you were a child, when you're an adolescent, when you're in a bad relationship 20 years ago. Uh, you know, we get we we act out of our conditioning rather than out of the present moment. That's one of the things that mindfulness does is it it gives you that perspective of what happened in 2000 isn't the same thing that is isn't 2013. I mean, that's, that's sort of a roundabout thing to make that comparison because, of course, uh, there's a big difference, you know, it's an interaction between two people. But I think if you understand the connection, if you think, well, why would somebody be hesitant to give a cat to somebody who has returned in and turned in seven cats at once. Well, if you've been working in that situation, you probably run into a lot of things where people have no self-control. They end up taking more animals than they can possibly take care of, and it's a bad thing for the animal to put them in that. You know, so in this in this case, she's wondering if what you did in two thousand puts you in that category of people that you're going to, next time you'll have 14 cats that uh, are malnourished and living in a filthy situation and then have to be, uh, uh, have to be turned in and probably eventually put to sleep. Well, the cats were in excellent shape. Yeah. And it was a judgment call on whether my mother, my daughter, and myself lived in an apartment or lived on the street. Yeah, it's not really about the cats, though, here. It's about everybody in every situation, the advantages that come from from realizing that there's a difference between the past and the present, and, and just being aware of those differences. So. Well, <clears throat> right speech, you know, we've, we've talked about that. We started talking about right action. We talked about right action in terms of not not... Uh, uh, in terms of 
it's a wrong action to hurt and uh, destroy other living beings, but we also point out it's impossible not to. So therefore, uh, if you form the intention not to harm other beings, then it gives you another point on which to anchor your, your practice of mindfulness and to come to understand your motivations. Because basically with all, all unvirtuous behaviors, the only reason that you ever behave in an unvirtuous way is out of selfishness and ignorance, uh, motivated by desire, aversion, and so forth. It's a way of getting in touch with those things. The other aspects of right action, you know, have you talked about right action and, and other... Uh, On other dissonance now. No? Because we didn't have anything last week, didn't Right, oh, that's right. Okay, so the, the next part well, first of all, right action is, first of all, not doing wrong actions, and we can identify certain kinds of wrong actions. But then that's only the beginning of right action. It's also doing the opposite of these things. The opposite of causing harm, killing other uh, other beings, is, is helping and protecting and easing the suffering of other beings. So that's the other dimension of it. In terms of the forms of wrong action that we can use to discover the nature of right action. Uh, the next one after uh, non-killing non and non-harming is not taking what's freely given. Or in the common vernacular, not stealing. Has anybody in here ever stolen anything? Of course they will. Yeah. Right? It could be questionable. So I, was there anybody around to ask whether I took this thing or not? There wasn't. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, they left well, that bicycle alone, didn't they? Yeah. That could apply to just about every burglar who doesn't run into the owner of the house. <laughs> Do you remember us talking about the telephone poles, I right? Yeah. I, the next day, I go by to get, see whether the telephone poles are there. Yeah. And they're all gone but one. Mm -hmm. And they're all chopped up into these nice little pieces. Mm -hmm. And there was three guys standing there. Yeah. Fortunately. I said, can I have them? They said, take them. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Has anybody else ever stolen anything? But, but none of us do that anymore, right? No. <laughs> As a kid, it was um, like candy or something. It was very thrilling to get away with it. Uh -huh. And then um, as an adult, um, I can remember justifying taking home office supplies. Was, you know, like, yeah. Well, yeah. Pens, paper clips. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I don't do any of that anymore. I mean, sincerely, I don't do any of that anymore, but I can uh, see uh, that how easy it is for someone to rationalize that this is okay, especially if it's um, perceived as being from an evil corporation or whatever <laughs> 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 that deserves it. 
They don't well, pay me enough anyway. I'm taking all these paper clips. Well said. <laughs> There's also resources. I know this is probably getting more into right livelihood, mm-hmm. but the extent to which we take up space and we're taking land from other sentient beings, That's right? True. Wiping out space for wildlife to the extent that all of this comfort is largely due to exploitation in like other countries, you know, that don't have these resources. To what extent is that stealing? Well, that does get into right livelihood, but that's, that's right livelihood. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later, but it, right livelihood involves in, in order to live, you doing things that really uh, violate any of these other precepts that we talk about. So that's an example of right livelihood that is taking what's not freely given. It's, yeah. So on the question of right livelihood, on the question of stealing, on the question of Right speech. I want to tell a story and I want your judgment because it's still, it's very layered. Once upon a time I was a locksmith and it was my job to break and enter for a living and a pretty comfortable fee. So this student called my business up and said, oh help, oh help, I have lost my key, I have locked myself out of my apartment. Please come and open my apartment. And so I came and I did. It took me about 30 seconds. And I turned to him and I said, okay, that will be $25 as previously agreed. So then he looks at me and starts, doesn't have a wallet. Oh gosh, can't pay yet. Too bad. So sad. Door's already open. Guess you lost out. And that's, you know, all going on, on in his face. So I smiled sweetly and I looked around and I said very loudly, nice stereo you got there. Shame if anything should happen to it. (laughs) 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 And and he says, excuse me, and went back to his roommate's room and found me $25. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, okay, so... There's a lot going on in that story. Mm-hmm. My menacing his stereo isn't quite theft, but I certainly frightened him badly. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in that case, I think that's a clear case of something that wasn't freely given, that $25, right? Exactly the kind of thing I was looking for. So I'll ask the rest of it. Since that $25 was obviously not freely given, (laughs) does that mean that Chris was wrong to have taken it? That she should provide a service. (laughs) He broke the contract. He broke it. Okay, so gee, I, I guess this whole idea that you shouldn't take what's not freely given is kind of a bunch of crap, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I am interested in your point of view there, yeah. (laughs) Well, there are some situations that are really clear cut. (laughs) And then there's there's a gigantic gray area. And it takes all kinds of different forms. So that's why, you know, it's, this is not, this is not a, a rule. It's not a thou shalt not. 
it's a, a principle to live by, the principle of not taking what's not freely given. And the purpose of living by that principle is, is not primarily to become a non-thief. That's just a beneficial side effect. The purpose of the practice is to examine these situations. You know, there there are some people would sort of take the attitude that that nobody really owns anything. It's just whoever can get it and hold on to it. And, uh, somebody else can take it away from them. Well, that's, I, mean, I mean, you know, there's a whole segment of society that has that mindset. There's a whole culture of warlords over in Afghan who each own separate cities. Well, there, there's even yeah. There, there are, are cultures that that uh, embody some of those kinds of ideas. So the whole idea of private property is is, is nonsense. You, you could adopt that. The, the point here, the point of this is to understand in human interactions when there is this thing of mine and not mine comes up examine it. The point is to examine it and to examine your motivations. You know, and probably, it would probably be hard to find anybody who would disagree with what you did and you, you taking the $25. But on the other hand, it would not be hard either to find somebody who would say, well, if uh, if she'd given up and gone away, then he deserved to keep his twenty five dollars. But you you would not have freely given your time and, and skills. Right, and I wouldn't have come back for his stereo. <laughs> well, we're we're taking that for granted. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if the guy had two moments, he would have realized that I was a paper tiger, and he could have just laughed. And there's a very good chance he did realize that. <laughs> no, it's the rule is an opportunity to examine your behavior in a lot of different instances and try to understand more deeply what's really going on. <clears throat> and in terms of this whole thing of freely given and not freely given, uh, you know, I did not freely give all that money to. Uh, What's his name? The guy that started Microsoft, Bill Gates. I did. So he shouldn't take it, right? <laughs> right. But then again, you don't have to take what you traded for it either. <laughs> that's right. It's all a trade. That's that's I guess one way to think about it. If is it, if you, oh, pack rats will trade you. They will bring you stuff and then make off with your car keys. So, so it, it's about examining what you're doing and why. I mean, stealing is obviously wrong, but why does anybody ever steal? Because they, they, they don't steal for philosophical reasons. They don't steal because they believe that you know there should be no, there is no such thing as private property, and therefore you shouldn't hold on to these things. Do they? Why do people steal? They agree. Greed and, and not caring about you, right? They don't care how much you suffer as a result of it. It's total, total lack of compassion, selfishness, greed. 
And so, and so the reason that you examine your actions is to get in touch with to the degree to which these things operate in yourself. So if nobody would notice that that rock or brick is missing, <coughs> it's okay to take it? No. <laughs> no. Right. I think, no. You know, the thing is, it, it's not for me to say, and it's not for you to ask me. Right. It's for you to ask you. Mm -hmm. How it's does for, this... It's for you to ask you, and that's more important than whether you take it or not. So how does this virtue propagate? I become entirely aware of every time I go, ah, oh. I become entirely aware of that, and I never do that again. And it sounds like there's going to be some cryptic and subtle outcome of that, that I want to know what I'll be when I grow up, when I have mastered that. What you'll be is, is somebody who doesn't have the kind of attachment to material things that on the one hand, makes you want to take them away from other hand, other people. On the other hand, makes you suffer when you can't have them or when you lose them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which doesn't keep you from enjoying them when you do have them, <laughs> but it means that when you lose them, you don't suffer. That's really the whole point of it. Yeah. Please let me tell this story. Okay. <laughs> I've got a house. I've got a house for sale that has a very nice. Uh, hot tub, yeah. and because it's way on the east side, um, it doesn't get visited. You know, there's nobody living in it. Right? So I'm quite sure some neighborhood kids have taken to to hopping the fence and um, taking enjoying this, the spot. The problem is they leave the top open and leave it running. So I put up a sign that said, "If you're going to use the spa, please clean the inside out when you're done." The management. Close <laughs> <laughs> the top, turned it back off, and that was fine for a week. And I went back the other day and it was half open again and still running. So I took that sign down and said, put up another sign that said, Warning, the spa has been treated with strong chemicals prior to sale. If your balls fall off, don't blame me. <laughs> And I don't know. <laughs> not enough time to figure out whether they've been back or not. So you're wondering whether that's right speech or not. Yeah, you're kind of exaggerating, aren't you? Yeah. Oh. Skillful no, skillful skillful right. Yeah, I know. They wouldn't really fall off, would they? No. <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, that's what makes it interesting. I didn't do anything to the <laughs> but would you take a chance? <laughs> oh, of course not. Not if they knew you. <laughs> so okay, okay, so kind of where this is going is oh, okay. <laughs> Why should somebody try to be virtuous and practice right speech and, and right action? What's in it for me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there is quite a lot in it for you. Like for on the one hand, if you behave consistently in these ways, <clears throat> you will be rewarded because other people see you in, as, as the kind of person. <coughs> you, 
who does these things, and that has that has a lot of benefit. One thing people will like you more because of it is think about people that you know and how much you like or don't like them, and is it not affected by things like that? If you know that they're always, uh, uh, or or that they tend to lie, or speak divisively, or take things that if nobody's going to notice and they get away with it, you know. Do you like them as much? Probably not. And some and the people that you know that are highly trustworthy, and that you know they're not going to talk about you behind your back, and if they tell you something, you know it's most likely true, and if they say something, you know it's most likely uh, they're, they're saying it uh, for your benefit, to help you in some way. How do you feel about those people? Are they the ones you want to learn your life preferentially? Of course they are. So that's one of the benefits. You know, there are the very immediate benefits, but the deeper, the more profound benefit is comes from understanding that your suffering comes from desire and aversion. That, that the only reason that this mind of yours creates a mental state of suffering in response to certain things. Okay, we're just about done. Thank you. <laughs> the only reason that, that uh, uh, you suffer is because you have this part of your mind that won't accept the way things are, wants to have things you don't have, and wants not to lose the things that you lose. Uh, wants you not to experience pain, wants you to experience as much pleasure as possible. That this part of you, uh, although you look at it superficially, yeah, yeah, right. I, I want as much pleasure as possible. And I want to avoid pain. But what it does is it, it gives you the kind of mind that's constantly uh, constantly suffering. Constantly suffering the pain of loss. Constantly suffering the pain of wanting something that it doesn't have, and so on and so forth. And at a deeper level, why do we have this craving, this selfish desire to uh, uh, avoid pain and, and pursue pleasure, it, it's part of a deeper program, a deeper ignorance about the way things really are. So the point of practicing virtue is to get in touch with those parts of yourself that are actually making you suffer, have always been making you suffer, and will continue to make you, you suffer. It's to help you get in touch with those parts of you that are, that are the, the drivers behind craving and that, that are coming from a place of ignorance and that are responsible for all the unhappiness and suffering that you experience in life. It has nothing to do with what happens to you. It has to do with who the person is that it happens to. So the practice of virtue is about getting in touch with that and changing that. As you start to see that I do these things out of selfishness, and then as you start to experiment with, with unselfish behaviors, loving behaviors, compassionate behaviors, generous behaviors, and things like that, you change yourself in a fundamental way. And you open yourself up to a much deeper level of understanding. So, so that's, what, that's what's lying behind this. Um, just to finish up, not taking what isn't freely given. What about the situation 
where the last uh, cracker with the, uh, the the last brownie on the plate, right? There was just one last brownie on the plate. Right? Now, nobody's going to fault you if you take the brownie, right? What do most people do in that situation? Half the brownie. Well, I, I, of course, it depends depends on the, the culture and the situation, but I think in in this culture, at least in most of the circles that, that I what you do is you want the brownie, you pick up the plate, and you offer it like this, and the people you offer it to, mostly what they say is, no, you go ahead. No, that's all right, I've had it off, you, you take it. Because they know you want it. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you could just grab the brownie before somebody else does. <laughs> but if you offer it, it's, it, it's freely given. Uh, and so that makes it hard. But even better still, if somebody else offers it to you and you know they want it, you get a chance to be generous. It's a really good thing. So, really, right action also has to do with learning to be generous and learning to be unselfish. Learning to take satisfaction when somebody else enjoys something. And give, give something to other people. There's many different ways that you can, can give to other people. Uh, and you will derive your own satisfaction and happiness from seeing that what you give can can make them happy. So that's what this is really all about. And protecting the property of others, respecting the property of others, but also giving people things. Giving people, if, if you have more than you need and somebody else has need, that's a really good thing to do. And and uh, sometimes just giving something to somebody else so that they will have the enjoyment of it. And you will have the actually, if, if you're really doing this out of true generosity, you're going to get more satisfaction out of them eating the brownie than you would if you ate it yourself. Is that not true? Mm -hmm. It's funny, we all know this, but but we don't go around doing things as if we know this. So that's another part of right action and other things about right action that we can potentially talk about, but that you can start practicing. Uh, uh, not engaging in sexual misconduct is, is an obvious kind of wrong action. <clears throat> and we can think about all sorts of abusive and exploitive know, uh, things that, that that can be referred to. It, by the way, in, in, in this system of thought, it absolutely does not apply to things like uh, not having sex out of marriage or not having sex with somebody of the same sex or things like that. It has nothing to do with that. It, it has to do with sexual activity that causes pain and suffering, unnecessary pain and suffering. But there's an extension of that. Why limit it to sexual activity? You can be just exploitive of other people in, in ways that have absolutely nothing to do with 
with sex. And you can be abusive. Uh, there can be power differences, and you can be uh, you, you can use those power differences in ways that have nothing at all to do with sex. So maybe we should generalize this that instead of not engaging in uh, sexual misconduct, not not engaging in in misconduct to do with your interactions and interrelationships with people in all these different forms. And then you can carry it a step further, which is not only that, but doing something to prevent other people from abusing uh, their relationships with other people. Doing things to help other people not be abused as a result of their relationships. Even doing things to help people learn to either, on, on the one hand, not to engage in those kinds of activities, and on the other, not to allow themselves to be the victim. If we go back to sexual activities, there's something that's been found that people who are subject to abusive uh, uh, sexual activities tend to be abusive in turn. When, when they find themselves in a situation, they tend to do it to somebody else. So, anything, and, and, and this applies to, to any other kind of relationship. Those who are subject to any other kind of abuse uh, of this sort in their relationships to other people tend, when they're in a situation where they have the opportunity to do it, they tend to do it to somebody else. So this, this is a, it's like a poison that, that spreads and feeds itself. <coughs> and so you could take right action as regards this, generalize it to all our human interaction, all of our relationships, not just the sexual one. And then you can try to turn that on its head in whatever way you can to prevent those sort of things from happening, prevent that kind of poison from continuing to spread. We've gone over time. We've been patient. Thank you.